All right, guys. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Now, while you're doing that, let me just kind of set the stage for new folks. We um, have begun a study in Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're doing it a little differently this time. We're not going verse by verse, which is what we normally do. Uh, we're uh, studying it according to its theme, which is joy. So I, I've isolated every place where the word joy, rejoice, is mentioned, studied the context, and then have used those as main points. So far, we've looked at joy in fellowship, then joy in proclaiming the gospel, thirdly, joy of faith, Number four, we've seen joy in unity, and now we are looking at number five, joy in service. Joy in service, and that covers verses 12 to 18. If you want to read that, we've already read it a few times, but last time in breaking that down, we looked at the actions of a servant. Looking at service, we've looked at the actions of a servant out of John 13, and this morning, I'd like to look at another aspect of being a servant, possibly the greatest teaching on the subject of servanthood in the Bible, and uh, it's found in Matthew 20, if you turn there. And I'm calling it the principle of servanthood, the principle of servanthood. So when you get to Matthew 20, we're going to start with verses 20 and 21. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that would be James and John, came to him, came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in the kingdom. No big deal. Now look. The concern of Jewish mothers for their sons is legendary. I get that. I get that. However, Mark's gospel implies that James and John actually asked their mother to go to Jesus for them with this request. A couple of big, strong fishermen. Mama, we're afraid to go ourselves. Could you go ask him? Look, it can't be too hard in James and John. Uh, wanting greatness in this life for ourselves is just part of who we are as fallen human beings. It's rooted in our pride. It's pride that wants to be great in the sense of honor, prestige, and power over others. That is why politics attracts so many people who really aren't looking to serve others. Some of them are. Most of them I don't think are. But uh, the term civil servant in politics at least, is a misnomer. Uh, they are instead looking to be served and to use their power to enrich themselves and the Lord over others. Now, very often the way people obtain greatness in this world is through special favors based on family relationships. So if you have a family member that has a business, it's a fairly successful business, uh, usually they'll hire family first for positions of authority in the company and so on. Um, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that that's a fact, that often people will work their way through the ranks uh, into a leadership position because they have gone to a family member who is in a, some position of power to help them and to do for them, and they will grant them that, uh, that request to give them a place of employment or 
uh, even some kind of executive leadership position. Well, this is exactly what Salome tried to do with Jesus. She tried to get him to grant her request based on nepotism. You see, Salome was the sister of Mary, who was, of course, the mother of Jesus, which meant that Jesus was her nephew, which made James and John his first cousins. So Salome was, first of all, relying on her relationship with Jesus as his aunt to afford her preferential treatment. Look, in Jewish culture, family is very important. And um, nepotism is considered the perk of being family. It's normal. It's normal. So first of all, she relies on her family relationship with Jesus to undergird her request, but then to kind of stack the deck Further in her favor, she employs a nakedly transparent attempt at flattery. She tries to butter Jesus up by kneeling down before him. The Greek word is proskuneo, which is the same word translated worship in many other places in the New Testament. In other words, listen, she worshiped Jesus in order to get something from him. A lot of people do that. A lot of people will try to use God to butter him up so that they give, he gives them something. So, boy, I, I'm up for that big promotion. Uh, I better get back to church because I want God to be on my I better get back to church and worship God because I want God on my side on this. I want him working for me. Or sometimes a person gets bad news that they have come down with some kind of very serious disease or a loved one. And so they say, well, I better get back to church and get right with God, worship God, because I want him to heal this disease. Now, is that wrong? It's not wrong to let adversity drive you to God. It happens all the time, as long as God's the focus and not just what he's going to give you so that if he answers the prayer, you stick him on a shelf again and go about your life just the way it was before this thing hit. To say this request was bold would be an understatement because sitting at the right and left hands of a king were the highest positions of honor in his kingdom. Now, of course, Jesus knew what was going on here, knowing that this request had originated with James and John. Jesus turns to them and says in verse 22, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. The cup that Jesus mentions here was the cup of suffering and death. The very thing he had just finished talking about in verses 18 and 19 with regard to himself. This was confirmed in the Garden of Gethsemane the morning of his crucifixion before he was crucified of course uh, he was praying in the garden and he said in matthew 26 verse 39 he went a little it says in matthew 26 verse 39 he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying oh my father if it is possible let this cup pass from me he's talking about the cross nevertheless not as i will but as you will Guys, this cup is talked about in other places in Scripture as the cup of God's indignation and wrath. 
One place would be Revelation 14, verse 10. God's cup of indignation and wrath, which was poured out full strength on Jesus when he hung on the cross and paid for our sins by dying in our place. Baptism, as we have already talked about, is a Greek word that means to immerse or to be immersed in something. Here, it is a reference to Jesus being immersed in his mission to die for the sins of humanity, which is how he used it in Luke 12:50, when he said, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. He was immersed in his mission to go to the cross and die for us. So Jesus is essentially saying to James and John, look, greatness and glory in the coming earthly kingdom, the millennial kingdom, can't be granted as a favor to friends and family. It is earned by being a suffering servant for the cause of Christ. Look at verse 22 again, where Jesus said to James and John, you guys don't really even know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said, oh, sure, we're able. I'm sure at that moment, James and John had no idea what they were saying. But they would go on to find out that following Jesus didn't lead to a crown, not at least initially, but to a cross presently. I think that too many people start to follow Jesus too quickly without first counting the cost, even as Jesus admonished his followers or potential disciples to do. In Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26, he said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What would a man give in exchange for his soul? It's a very piercing question. Nothing in this life is worth trading for your eternal soul. I don't care what it is. I don't care if somebody said tomorrow, you can be as wealthy as a, as a Bezos or a Zuckerberg or whatever but you have to give up your soul. I'm convinced some people would do that. But that's a very foolish trade. You can only enjoy earthly riches for a number of years. What, maybe 80, 100? What if it was 150? That is nothing compared to eternity. But guys, listen. Suffering and persecution for Jesus' sake has a way of weeding out phonies. It has a way of weeding out phonies. As Jesus taught in the parable of the sower. Such an important parable, it's told three times in the Gospels. In Matthew 13, Mark 4, and in Luke chapter 8. Let me read to you uh, just from Matthew's Gospel. And there were four types of soil the seeds, uh, seeds fell on. I'll just read you the first two, because I really want the second one to be the focus. But I'll read it to you the NLT. But you can turn there, Matthew 13. And I, I just want to pick it up in verse 3 where it says, He, Jesus, told many stories in the form of parables, such as this one. Listen, he said, A farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. 
Others fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. In other words, there's bedrock underneath the surface of the soil. The seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But the plants soon wilted under the hot sun, and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Now, we're not left to speculate, well, what exactly does all this mean? We can go, because Jesus later on explained it to his disciples. Uh, verse 18. Now, listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting seeds, Jesus said. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. The seed that fell on the rocky or the shallow soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy, have a great emotional response. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. This is the problem with emotional presentations of the gospel. Uh, look, I, when the Spirit's moving, there's going to be some emotion. People are going to start, start getting broken and weeping. That's great if it's Spirit-led. But when a person tries to evoke those emotions through really touching stories or whatever, you may provoke an emotional response. You may move somebody in a moment of emotion to say, I need Jesus. Yeah, that's what I need. I need Jesus. I want to go forward and pray. And they come forward and they pray, but it really isn't about Jesus. It's about they, they need to feel differently in their life. They're going through a bad period. They're maybe depressed. They're discouraged, whatever. And they want Jesus to kind of lift them up, bolster them in their feelings. Well, eventually they don't hang on very long because there's no real depth there. Their, the faith is not real. It, it's shallow. It doesn't really penetrate the heart. And therefore, it will never change and transform a life, right? But listen, enduring persecution and suffering for Jesus' sake not only proves someone is genuine, a genuine believer. If they hang in there, again, those that just simply have an emotional response, they don't last. But a person who hangs in there, you know, day after day, week after week, good times, bad times, storms, sunshine, and they hang in there. That proves that they are a genuine believer. And it also demonstrates that they're acquiring rewards and honor someday in heaven. Turn to Matthew 5 quickly. You all know this. It's kind of the climax of the sermon on, I'm sorry, not the climax, but the climax of the Beatitudes, I should say. Not the whole Sermon on the Mount, which runs through chapter 7. But Matthew 5 Verses 11 and 12. Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Now he's talking to his disciples, of course. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So look, if you're being persecuted for Jesus' sake and you're enduring it, the one good thing is it says you're on the right team, first of all, because the world loves its own, Jesus said. If you were of the world, the world would love you because the world loves those that belong to it. But if you really belong to me, the world's going to hate you. They're going to persecute you, all right? But, but be a good cheer. That proves that you're, you know, on the right side. 
and someday your rewards will be waiting for you in heaven. So turning back to Matthew 20, and again I want to read verses 22 and 23. So Jesus answered James and John, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, Well, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by the Father. Jesus assured James and John that they would indeed drink of the cup of suffering that he was about to drink from. And we know that that became a reality. James became the first martyr of the church as listed in Acts 12 verse 2. And John was persecuted and banished to the island of Pat, the Isle of Patmos for a time, as recorded in Revelation 1, verse 19. So they did suffer for Jesus' sake. Verse 24. Now, when the, when the ten other disciples uh, heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Look, let's be clear on this. Don't think that the other disciples were displeased because they were repulsed by the carnality and pride of James and John. How could they? How carnal? No, they were upset because they pulled, you know, the ace out of their pocket, the family connection. You know, Mama, he won't say no to you. Where's aunt? We're family, right? Look, the other disciples were just as guilty of this and had demonstrated the same selfish ambition themselves numerous times during Jesus' earthly ministry. I'll give you one example. Matthew, uh, Mark 9, all right? I'll just read it to you. If, if you want, you can turn it over. But Mark 9, verses 33 and 4. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? So as they're walking to Capernaum, he's leading the group, and he's hearing them arguing. Now, he knew what was going on, but he wanted to hear from them. So what was it about? I heard you guys, you know, kind of arguing on the road as we were walking. What was that all about? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Guys, this was a running argument they had the entire length of Jesus' ministry. And as we said a couple weeks ago, they were having that very argument in the upper room the night of the Last Supper because nobody wanted to wash people's feet. That's the lowliest task of the lowliest servant. And these big shots weren't going to stoop down to wash anyone's feet, arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, which led Jesus to gird himself with a towel, stoop down and wash their feet himself giving them a fantastic lesson in servanthood. All of that was the background or the context of this passage. Verses 25 to 28 become the actual principle of servanthood. So verse 25, Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. We'll stop there. In other words, the Gentile, unbelievers, Gentiles. Jesus said, measure greatness in terms of 
how many people they are in authority over, but greatness in the eyes of God is measured by how many people you put yourself under to serve. Verse 27, and whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. The word first there is a Greek word that in this context means first in the sense of honor and importance. So in the eyes of the world, the higher up you climb in business or in politics, and the more people you have authority over, the greater you are seen to be, the greater you are in the eyes of the world. However, Jesus is saying that just the opposite is true with God and how he views greatness. Again, in God's eyes, the more people you place yourself under to serve. And Jesus even talks about being a slave. A slave has no rights. You know, as Americans, we're big on saying, hey, that's my right. I've got that right. Yeah, we do. But we are citizens of a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. And once we follow Jesus, we give up our rights. We become the lowliest of servants, the slaves of all, in the sense of being servants to all, right? And the more you get under people to serve them, to lift them up, the greater you'll be in the kingdom of God on earth someday. In fact, kingdom thinking and living are so contrary from the world's ways of look, uh, way of looking at things that when Jesus taught on this subject, and he did so all the way through his ministry, he talked about the kingdom and what was, what was involved in the kingdom. But whenever he taught on this subject, his teaching seemed paradoxical and even crazy to the unsaved mind. Well, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1? The things of God often seem crazy to the people of this world because we have the spirit and they do not. And the things that we understand, we learn, we speak, are spiritual in nature. But the world, they don't have the equipment. They don't have the Holy Spirit inside of them to decipher, okay, uh, the, the principles of the kingdom. Unless they get saved, of course. But when Jesus talked about the principles of the kingdom um, in his teachings, and remember he had a lot of unbelievers following him to see what he was all about and hear his words. Uh, some of them became disciples. Some of them walked away thinking, this guy's nuts. He's crazy because he would say, say things like this. These are all things Jesus said throughout the course of his ministry. Right? Uh, he who finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The first will be last, and the last will be first. When it comes to the kingdom, if you want to be somebody, then you have to become nobody. The more you give away, the richer you'll become. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. But if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. Or in other words, the way down is the way up, and the way up is the way down. Sounds like double talk to, to a, a, an unsaved mind. Guys, the problem today is that many Christian pastors and evangelists have tried to make Christianity appealing to the unsaved mind in an attempt to reach them with the gospel. Now, while I applaud the motive, God bless people that want to see others saved. That's great. But I really question the methods. I really That was the whole idea behind the seeker-sensitive movement. Try to 
Make the gospel sound appealing to the natural mind. The, guys, the gospel is inherently offensive. Not that we should be purposely offensive when we share it. But when you share the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came to save unworthy sinners, people who were lost, a reprobate, had no hope of ever pulling themselves out of that pit that where they have fallen into because they were not good people. They were unworthy, uh, evil sinners in the flesh. That's not a message that resonates with a lot of people. You know, they don't, don't want to hear that. They want to hear how great we are and, and so on and so forth. Um, but remember what Paul said in Galatians 1. If anyone preaches any other gospel than the one I've given to you, let them be accursed. He went on to say, look, if I preach to please men, I'm no longer a servant of Jesus Christ. There is a, there is a great inherent problem in any preaching that tries to, you know, tries to appeal to the unsaved mind in a sense where the gospel becomes something that, wow, I really, that sounds like something I'd like to add to my life because it sounds exciting or whatever, whatever it might be. Look, the true gospel of Jesus Christ is not the broad way of tolerance and inclusion. Was Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, leads to hell. The true gospel is the narrow way, the narrow way of persecution and rejection, which leads to heaven. In other words, it's the way of the cross. It's the way of Jesus Christ who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to heaven except through me. And that's why it's the narrow way, because a lot of people don't want to hear it. They want, a, they want a gospel where it's very tolerant, accepting. Everyone makes it, unless you're a mass murderer or whatever. But God's a very loving God. He doesn't really punish sin. Everyone makes it into heaven eventually. Universalism. Even Satan is going to get a pass eventually. I've heard that. Uh, that's all heresy. It's not biblical truth. All right? And Jesus here continues to teach his disciples the principle of servanthood in verse 28. He said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Greek word for ransom was used for the price paid to free a slave. The price paid to free a slave. This Greek word only appears twice in the New Testament, once here in Matthew 20. 28, and then again in the parallel passage in Mark 10, verse 45. In both passages, it refers to Jesus giving himself as the price, the ransom to redeem us from the slavery of sin and death. The word is followed by the preposition for. The Greek is anti, and it's a word that means instead of or in place of. In other words, it speaks of a substitute. A substitute, someone who dies instead of or in the place of another. Only Jesus Christ could have died in our place. Sinners can't die for sinners. It would take a sinless person to die for sinners. And there's only one person who's ever been born sinless, Jesus Christ, who then lived a sinless life and went to the cross and died for sinners. You all know Isaiah 53. Let me read to you out of uh, verses 4 and then verse, uh, verses 4 through 6 out of the NLT. 
Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was our substitute. He died in our place. Again, Matthew 20, verses 27 and 8. Jesus said, Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. There are those in society who work in what is called the uh, service industry. Waiters, cooks, busboys, bellhops, maids, caregivers, etc. These are people who are paid servants. They don't serve in these jobs for the pure joy of serving others. No, they expect to be paid for their services. And there's nothing wrong with that. These are very hardworking people. But Christians are those who serve purely for the joy of helping others. Now, I'm going to embarrass him a little bit. Hopefully not. We have here James, who is our missionary in Israel, who was on furlough. He came back to the States because he was battling cancer. God's been very gracious. It looks like he is just about cancer-free. So he's ready to go back on the mission field. But for over 20 years, James lived in Israel where he volunteered his time. Now, we, we supported him and some others supported him, but he worked for free. He worked totally for free, and he worked at some of the most difficult places you can ever imagine. These were nursing homes. These were handicapped facilities. He, he took care of some of the most severely handicapped people in the entire country of Israel. I mean, these were people that couldn't walk, couldn't go to the bathroom themselves, couldn't clean themselves after going to the bathroom, needed to be showered, taken care of completely. And uh, he did that for over 20 years. And some of the stories, he came a few years ago and shared some of the stories of what he had done uh, in, in serving the Lord, serving these folks. And I thought to myself, boy, God has sure given James a lot of grace. I know I could never do a job like that for money. I would never take a job doing that level of service for people for money. I just don't have that in me. But I understand where he's coming from because if I went onto the mission field and I was placed in a hospital try, helping people for the time I was there, as a missionary serving Jesus, I would do for love what I would never do for money. Love is a powerful motivation. I mean, you know, it, it, it's a powerful thing. And when you know Jesus and you serve him, he gives you a, a, a love in, in your heart for others. James will tell you before he went to Israel, he was an anti-Semite. He was anti-Semitic. And he went to Israel with us the first time we went, and God began to work in his heart, and he fell in love with the Jewish people. Because when Jesus is really moving, he gives you a love for people that you didn't love, even enemies. And when you serve the Lord, his grace is upon you. And he gives you a heart for people. He gives you the ability to love beyond what you're able to love. It's, it's a, agape love. It's a supernatural love. We've, we've talked about that. And um, the, the whole... Definition of Christian service is sacrifice. It's sacrifice. It's sacrificial. 
Uh, the giving of yourself to others, putting them first and yourself last, is at the heart of what it means to be a servant of Christ. Remember what Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Guys, one thing about Christian service, there is joy. There is joy in serving others and doing it as if we are doing it for Jesus himself. He said, whatever you do for the least of these, my brethren, you do for me. And we all understand that. And when we serve him by serving others, we understand ultimately we're doing it for Jesus. That's why it doesn't matter how people treat us. It doesn't matter how they respond to us. Because I'm doing it for Jesus. Do it for Jesus. He always blesses it. And it's just, you're blessed, all right? The ultimate joy and rewards will be when we stand before him one day and lay those acts of service we did on earth in his name, we lay them before him as acts of worship, acts of worship, we live to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servants. Well done, good and faithful servants. One author said, to serve Christ, one must follow him. He would have his servants obey his teachings and resemble him morally. They must apply the example of his death to themselves. All servants are promised the, con the constant presence and protection of their master, and this applies not only to the present life, but to eternity as well. Service now will receive God's approval in a, in a coming day when we stand before him. Whatever one suffers of shame or reproach here on earth will be small indeed compared to the glory of being publicly commended by God the Father in heaven. Again, guys, let the words of Jesus sink deep into your mind and in your heart. I have not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Those are the words we have to live by. It's not easy. It's a supernatural thing. And let me just say this to you. The Christian church has become so self-focused. I don't know when it happened. It's probably a gradual thing. But we have moved in general from being Christ-centered and other-centered to being self-centered. And I talked to a pastor not long ago, Calvary guy, and he was really wrestling with this. He said, Phil, last Sunday I taught on taking up our cross and following after Jesus. We just read the passage. I had this overwhelming sense that nobody wanted to hear that. That was not a message that anyone really wanted. I could tell by the looks on their faces. I was not connecting at all with many of them, most of them. Because nobody wants to hear about dying to self. We've become so self-focused as the Church of Jesus Christ today. It's all about me for many people. I want God to tell me how he's going to bless me. What he's going to do for me. Talk about dying to self. You can just see it on the marquee outside the church. Message today, take up your cross and deny yourself. Let's see how many people that brings in. And although it may not be an exciting subject, it's a biblical subject, one that Jesus concerned himself with throughout his ministry. Even to the point of saying people, look, there's a cross involved if you're going to follow me. 
you better count the cost. Because I'm not going to promise you anything except I'll be with you and I have a place reserved for you in heaven. What happens between the day you receive me and the day you stand before me in glory, I'm not promising you it's going to be a primrose path, all sunshine and flowers. It's going to be a cross. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be hard times because how are you going to relate to people? How are you going to love people and minister to the people if, if, if I keep from you every ounce of adversity and heartache? How can you minister to hurting people if you don't know hurt? And God is saying, look, this is what it is. And although the church of Jesus Christ doesn't want to hear it for the most part, we had better listen because this is what it means to be a true servant of Jesus. You want joy in your life? It comes by dying to self and living for others. Oh, that's not a message many want to hear, but that's the truth. Jesus said it. We've looked at it. And may God give us the grace to apply it and to say, Lord, and, and I pray this, guys, and I really do. I'm not just saying this because I'm up here. I pray this all the time. God, I am way too selfish. I know that. I am a selfish man in many ways. Give me grace to be unselfish. Give me grace to be a, a, a people lover as you were, Jesus. You love people. People were drawn to you because they knew you loved them. Give me grace, Lord. I need grace to love people. I, I got too much self-love in my, in my heart. I need to have your love for people. And may God give us the grace to walk in that agape love in a very hurting world. May God give us grace. Father, we thank you for the great love wherewith you loved us by sending your son to die for us. And Jesus, please work in our hearts. We have you in our hearts right now, but please work in our hearts that your love would overflow us for people, that we would love even our enemies because they need to be saved. And we just pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart that longs for the idea of being a servant because that's what it's all about we thank you lord there is joy in service uh, in, in servant servanthood but we have to um, draw on your strength and love we thank you we ask all this now in jesus precious name amen